Welcome to NetSec Tech. I'm Jean Meserve, and it's great to have you with us. This podcast from the Special Competitive Studies Project has a goal to introduce people to emerging technologies and explore how they impact our everyday lives and our national security. Today, spying. Spying has always involved secrets, undercover agents, surveillance, intercepted communications, and careful analysis. It still does, but there is more and more public information for intelligence agencies to exploit. The question is, are they doing so, and are they doing so effectively? With me is Amy Ziegart. Amy is the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, and the author of Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. Amy, it's great to have you with us. Jean, it's great to be with you. So you say we are experiencing an intelligence revolution. How so? Well, I think this is a moment of profound technological change. And we've had technological changes before, but I think there are two reasons why this moment is different for intelligence. The first is we've never had so many emerging technologies changing so much so fast. So think about internet connectivity, two thirds of the world online, the commercial satellite revolution, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, synthetic biology, and all of these technologies are interacting with each other as well. So that's those are profound changes to economics, to politics, to civil society. But I think the second big reason why this moment is different is that these technologies are changing not just the future, but how we understand the future. So they're changing the intelligence business itself in some fundamental ways. How? Well, I talk about how the if you think about these technologies coming together, they are creating what I call the five mores for intelligence. So the first more is they're driving more threats. So think about cyber threats today and how challenging they are compared to the physical threats of yesteryear. The second more is more speed. Intelligence to be effective has to move at the speed of relevance, right? It has to be done in time for decision makers. And that speed is accelerating dramatically. And I often talk about how, if we think about the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, Kennedy famously had 13 days to assess the intelligence. Fast forward to 9-11, President Bush had 13 hours to assess the intelligence from the first World Trade Center attack to his announcement of what the US was going to do. If you look at today, what President Biden confronts, it's more like 13 minutes or 13 seconds because these threats are moving so fast. So that's the second more. The third more driven by new technology is more data, right? All of us are drowning in data. And how do we make sense of a world where the haystacks are growing exponentially and intelligence has to find needles in those haystacks and figure out what the haystacks mean as well? The fourth more is more customers. People like voters need intelligence. It's not just customers who have security clearances and work in secured facilities. And then perhaps the most disruptive change, the fifth more, is more competitors. Now anybody with an internet connection can collect intelligence, analyze intelligence, and produce intelligence. This is the open source intelligence revolution. And what that means is our intelligence agencies are losing their relative advantage. It, now it, uh, espionage and analysis aren't just for spy agencies anymore. So these mores that you've laid down are all challenges. Are there also opportunities here? 
Absolutely. And I'm, gr- I'm glad you raised the opportunity question because national security folks, as you know, typically like to go to the dark corner of the room and talk about how bad everything is. Yes, there are tremendous opportunities. So with all of these open source intelligence producers, for example, now you have more uh, people, more minds, more capabilities looking at hard problems. So my colleagues here at Stanford are very involved in nuclear threats, using publicly available information to track North Korea's nuclear weapons program, to track what's going on in Iran. And so they are complementing and adding to the intelligence picture in some pretty novel ways. So you mentioned open source intelligence. What does that encompass? It enco- Different people define it differently, Gene, as you know. So I think of it as anything that is not classified or anything that is publicly available. So think about tweets about what's going on outside your door or outside your office. Think about what's posted online or commercial satellite imagery that's available for just about anyone. So open source intelligence uh, consists of a wide range of information that is available to people around the world. It's already being used and sometimes not by governments at all, but by private industry and private actors. Talk a little bit about how the, the ecosystem here has expanded because of this open source information. Well, I think, Gene, we're seeing this play out in living color in the war in Ukraine. So I think open source intelligence has been evolving pretty dramatically over the past several years, but the world now can see how open source intelligence is working in the war. So journalists are using commercial satellite imagery to show, and you can see this in the front pages of the newspapers, what are Russian troops doing? Where are they today? Former government officials are offering analyses about the day's events in Ukraine, as well as over the horizon analyses on Twitter. So you can follow the Twitter of my colleague, Mike McFall, former ambassador to Russia. He's using open source intelligence and producing open source analysis about what's going on in the war. We have many people have talked about the Institute for the Study of War, which is a wonderful think tank that has an interactive map showing day to day what's happening on the ground in Ukraine. Again, all publicly available information. And perhaps one of the most interesting examples I've come across is a student team here at Stanford that is being led by a former imagery analyst named Allison Puccioni. And they are using TikTok videos, geolocation tools, um, commercial satellites, um, thermal um, uh, satellite uh, uh, signatures to document and verify Russian human rights atrocities on the ground in Ukraine, and their reports are going to the UN. So these are students, right, at Stanford using TikTok videos to uncover all sorts of things happening on the ground in Ukraine, among other sources. So the examples you've cited are generally, from the U.S. perspective, very positive uses of open source intelligence. How are our adversaries using it? Oh, I wish I had a clear answer to that. Um, what I can say is that the the benefits and the disadvantages of open source intelligence stem from the same factors. So open source intelligence is open to everyone, good guys and bad guys. Anybody can play. It is the wild west of intelligence. There is no mandatory quality control. There's no bureaucracy to standardize tradecraft to make sure people are trying to get to the right conclusions. 
Uh, and so what that means is that errors are more likely and deception is also more likely as our adversaries get into this into this world more. And we've seen some of the errors, the disinformation around previous elections. That was a form of using open source intelligence to deceive and mislead, correct? I guess it's one way of thinking about it, because, but I guess it, it, from my perspective, it's a little bit different because it's mass deception as opposed to open source intelligence, which is, which is trying to ascertain what's going on in the world for a particular purpose. But yes, our adversaries are using our open internet ecosystem to wage massive deception influence operations. I would say there's one example I came across in my book of uh, an Iranian dissident group trying to derail the nuclear deal between the US and Iran by deliberately producing wrong information that there was a secret nuclear facility in the basement of a company in Tehran. And so that was the best example I can think of, of an adversary um, using open source, so-called open source intelligence in a nefarious way. And the good news of this story is that other open source experts uh, in California debunked this, these claims within about a week. What about the private sector? What role do they have here? They have a large and growing role. So if we think about these commercial satellite companies like Maxar or Planet or Black Sky, they're not just launching satellites into space that are taking images and going over the world. They're actually producing analyses of what they're finding. And so the US government is increasingly purchasing commercial satellite uh, information and now we see these companies moving more into the finished products business. So they're producing analyses, not just the raw information. So the U.S. government is using those images. But overall, is the U.S. government keeping pace with this change that's taking place? I would say the answer is no. The U.S. government is lagging behind the open source revolution. I went to Washington a couple of weeks ago and delivered this message to some folks in the intelligence community, and they didn't. Some of them didn't like to hear it. So I recognize that they're changing a lot in the intelligence community, but the question is, are they changing fast enough? And so you you mentioned a word, Gene, that I think is crucial, which is ecosystem. Open source intelligence isn't just stuff. It's not just information that the government needs to buy more of. Open source intelligence is an ecosystem of organizations and individuals that are collecting and producing information. And the US government needs to do much more to interact with them. So the example I often give is my colleague here at Stanford, Sig Hecker. Sig was the director of Los Alamos National Lab. He's a nuclear physicist by training. He did a lot of work when he had a security clearance on nuclear threats. SIG is now working in the open source world, tracking nuclear threats. How does SIG get his information to the US government? Well, it's whoever SIG happens to know. We cannot have a system that harnesses open source intelligence based on who does SIG happen to know. We need to have better nodes of engagement in the US government for a continuous flow of open source information as the foundation of intelligence by responsible producers. Is there resistance to this on the part of the intelligence community? That Do they just not want to see this change, accept this change, capitalize on this change? 
I think many leaders inside the 18 agencies of the intelligence community do recognize the value of open source intelligence and the need to change. But inertia is a very powerful force and culture is also a very powerful force. So these are secret intelligence agencies that believe that secrets matter the most. And so when you have secret intelligence agencies, the culture inside tends to be, if it didn't cost a lot of money to get, the information must not be worth a lot. And so that is a big attitude that needs to change where secrets are prized more than non-secret information. That is a huge cultural shift and that's part of the challenge. Is there also a lack of technology and a lack of technology talent within those agencies? Yes. So there is a need for harnessing more emerging technology in the community um, so that they can use things like artificial intelligence, machine learning to offload tasks to, that would free up human analysts to do what humans can do well, like creative hypothesis testing or hypothesis generation. Pattern recognition is something that machines can often do better than humans, uh, but humans can do things better than machines. So the, the intelligence community needs to adopt emerging technologies much better. How about interoperability of different databases and structured data, for example? A lot of work needs to be done there. And you mentioned the talent piece too. The most important piece is getting people that have the STEM backgrounds to be able to understand how emerging technologies are shaping geopolitics and to be able to buy the right technologies and use technologies in new ways. But you say the government has to move fast. It doesn't. I mean, just the procurement processes are arcane. How can it possibly keep up? I know. I, I, I joke here that in Silicon Valley, fast is weeks or months. And in the Pentagon, fast is a decade, right? I mean, we have to move much faster. How can they do it? Well, I've been recommending that we think about creating a new intelligence agency that is dedicated to open source intelligence. A 19th intelligence agency? Yes. And I know, I know when I have criticized the intelligence community in the past that 18 agencies are, are hard to coordinate, recommending another agency to add to the pile may not, um, may not be the best idea. However, we're in a world of suboptimal options. And so I do think that if we want to have that note of engagement with the open source community, if we want to be able to attract talent quickly without waiting two years for a security clearance, we have to have a dedicated open source intelligence agency. Would even that agency be able to share information effectively within the intelligence community? That's been an ongoing problem, that failure to connect the dots. Exactly. And so at least as I'm thinking about it, and look, there's no perfect solution, but I know, but I do know that what we've tried over the past 50 plus years isn't working. Right now, what we have is open source units within existing secret intelligence agencies, and they're not able to harness this emerging world. So I think we need to flip the script. We have a dedicated open source intelligence agency with a classified cell within it to be able to share on the classified side. But think about what an open source agency could get you. People could walk in the door much more quickly. They could go in and out um, to tech jobs. An agency could locate in places where people with STEM backgrounds actually live and work like Austin, Texas or Seattle or Silicon Valley. And now you have a chance to move talent in and out and be ambassadors to the private sector 
much more seamlessly. What that also means is you can experiment more with technological analytic tools because it's all unclassified data that you're working with. Do tech companies want to be that tied into the U.S. government? After Snowden, they wanted to be at arm's length. They absolutely did, but boy, times are changing. So right after Snowden, I did, uh, with my colleague Herb Lynn, we created a cyber boot camp for congressional staff. Democrats and Republicans came to Silicon Valley, and we went to a big tech company, and a senior executive of that tech company pointed at the congressional staffers, and he said, I'm protecting my systems from you. I think of you like the enemy, like the People's Liberation Army of China. This was the Snowden overhang, right? And this was a jaw-dropping moment for congressional staff. Fast forward to today, there are three reasons why the relationship with the private sector and the intelligence community is much, much better than it was then. And the three reasons are China, China, and China. <laughs> it's clear now that China isn't just a geopolitical threat, it's an economic threat to many of these companies. And so there is a much closer relationship today between big private sector companies as well as startups than there was in 2015, say, or 2016. Do you actually think it's politically feasible to create another intelligence agency? I think the question really is, is it feasible to create one before failure strikes? There is no question in my mind that we need to do much more in open source intelligence or the United States will lose decision advantage, right? Why do we have a $90 billion intelligence community? Is to give our policymakers decision advantage so they see threats and opportunities coming faster and better than our adversaries. If we can't make the most of this world of open source information, of incredible data being generated by all sorts of capabilities where we can see disease coming faster than we could before. We can see threats coming faster than it could before. And oh, by the way, we don't, the US government, don't own a monopoly on the or a near monopoly on the collection and analysis of that information. If we can't do that, the intelligence community will fail. So to me, the question is, do you get ahead of failure and create an agency now? Or do you have to wait for failure to strike to then realize that we needed to do something earlier? You mentioned China, which leads me to the potential for abuse of open source intelligence. We know that China has used data as a tool of repression. How do we put up the guardrails to prevent that from happening? It's such an essential point. So the more that we talk about the U.S. government getting involved in data, the more guardrails we need. And the guardrails can't just be congressional oversight because we know that Congress has a lot of demands. I mean, fortunately, the House is actually meeting now. They <laughs> hopefully will have a budget, um, but we have to have better guardrails. And that means other uh, organizations in the executive branch to oversee civil liberties. But my concern right now is that we have an asymmetric vulnerability. So the internet, for example, is free and open for China to steal us blind, to use data, all sorts of data of American citizens to train their algorithms. And they're doing it. And they're doing it. But the internet is not free and open for the United States to have that kind of access to what's going on in China. And so we have to be able to balance civil liberties of Americans with better fidelity of understanding what this data is that we have, that we allow foreign adversaries and private sector companies to access our data 
um, freely. I always joke that Google knows a lot more about me than the NSA does. Right. Is China the premier user of open source intelligence or are there other um, countries or rogue organizations who are also exploiting this successfully? I think there are many organizations or non-state actors that are using open source intelligence. Think about the value of Google Earth, for example, to locate things on a map. We know, for example, when Iran uh, launched a missile attack on US forces in Iraq, that missile strike that caused more than 100 uh, injuries, traumatic brain injuries. How did they locate where to strike? Commercial satellite imagery. So they didn't need to launch a billion dollar spy satellite in order to train their missiles on the right targets. So there are lots of examples of weak countries, non-state actors that can use what is openly available to their advantage. So it's always a spy versus spy situation. Somebody's always trying to one-up somebody else. Is that true in this open source information space as well? Yes, I think there is a countermeasure risk with open source intelligence. So imagine that an open source intelligence producer discovers something and an adversarial nation didn't realize that that secret program could be discoverable. Now they take countermeasures that make it impossible even for the US intelligence community to track what's going on. And the best example I could find where I think this might have happened is with North Korea. So you might remember in 2016, North Korea released these photos of Kim Jong-un inspecting a miniaturized nuclear warhead affectionately called the disco ball. There were all these pictures that were released and one open source researcher named Dave Schmerler um, identified, geolocated the building where the disco ball was by, by looking at the ceiling, the skylights, measuring various uh, telltale signs in the room. Well, the next time North Korea released a photo of a nuclear uh, warhead, which was dubbed the peanut about a year later, the photographs were taken in an all-white room with no telltale signs to be able to easily geolocate the building. Now, did the open source reporting cause North Korea to change what they did? We don't know, but it's a very curious example. What are the consequences, bottom line, if the U.S. doesn't adapt and make better use of this intelligence and of technology? Well, I think there's a lot at stake. There's uh, the first, I'd say two things. One is, as I mentioned before, intelligence is crucial for giving policymakers the advantage, right, to understanding when a war is going to break out before it does, as in the case of Ukraine or understanding when there's an opportunity for a nuclear arms deal or an opportunity for a trade deal. It's not just the threats, it's also the opportunity set. So there's that piece of it too. Um, but if we don't get the open source intelligence piece right, we may lose our economic advantage as well. One of the key differences of technology today is that most emerging technologies are inherently dual use. They have widespread commercial application and they have widespread military intelligence applications as well. And that's different from the days of yesteryear. And so it's not just a geopolitical or a military uh, stake that we're talking about. It is about America's economic competitiveness 
And there, if we lose our economic competitiveness, we have to ask, well, what does the world look like when the standards are set by China, when innovation ecosystems are managed by China? The world will not be an open place like it is today for scientists and engineers to collaborate. And it won't be infused with democratic values about what the standards are in the world. And so I think there's a lot at stake with this open source revolution, not just for the um, threat identification and opportunity identification, but for American values and leadership in the world. Do you think your message is getting through? I'm probably not the best person to answer that question. I hope it's getting through. Uh, I'm working hard to try to get it through. And uh, hopefully all the listeners to this podcast will help in that effort as well. And who's the audience that you primarily want to get it through to? Is it the intelligence community itself? Is it Congress? Who needs to hear this and wake up? I, th I would say it's all of the above. I mean, I think the intelligence community, folks that I talk to in the community seem to get it. The question is, do you have enough impetus to change? Members of Congress, some of the leaders in the intelligence committees, they get it too. But does Congress as a whole understand it? And the bottom line is, Gene, as you know, Members of Congress care if voters care. And so this is an issue of national importance. And so I hope that everyday citizens will get the message too, because if they really care about these kind of issues, then Congress will care about these issues. Amy Ziegart, thanks so much for joining us. Amy is the Morris Arnold and Nona Jean Cox Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, a senior fellow at Stanford University's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, and most importantly, author of a book that you all should read, Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. I'm Jean Meserve. Thanks a lot for joining us for NatSec Tech from the Special Competitive Studies Project. I hope you'll do so again. 